Simon. And uh, before we before we get into it, uh, I just wanted to uh, beg for a second. Um, I was checking out the analytics of our of our, uh, of our podcast, and we have uh, an estimated audience of sixty one, and that's crazy. That's more people than I've probably ever talked to in my life. Um, but um, I'm also greedy, and I want to talk to even more people. So if you listen to this podcast, I would love it. If you gave us a rating on the Apple, uh, the Apple Store, the iTunes, whatever, and I would also love it if you told one friend who you think would enjoy our ramblings um, about this podcast, and that would make that would make my life. And begging over, let's just jump into it. I'm here with my good friend Marcel, and this is the Jazz and Grass and Other Stuff Two podcast. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm here, too. Lyman, thank you for that look behind the curtain. Uh, I don't even look at the analytics, man. I don't even know what's going on. You you, you hold all <laughs> the cards. You know all the information. Um, yeah, I mean, now that you said that, uh, please, if you're listening to the podcast right now um, and you follow us on Instagram, you should leave a comment and let us know that you listen to the podcast because that would, that would make me feel very good inside. Um, I mean, no matter what, me and you are going to talk. It's just nice that we get to film it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, right, if you don't know what Jazz and Grass is, um, I should mention that it is primarily an Instagram account where we post guitar looks every single day. So on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I post um, uh, bluegrass guitar licks, right, bluegrass, that's what the genre is. And then on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, Lyman posts his jazz guitar licks, because jazz is a thing too, I still don't really know what it is. Um. <laughs> I barely know what it is at this point. And then on the weekends, we uh, do these podcasts, uh, and they come out uh, fortnightly on Sunday. Fortnightly. Did I tell you, did I tell you the, the Fortnite story? Not the video game, like about the actual word Fortnite? I, I, I'm familiar with, with what it means, but tell me the story. Well, so I, um, I, teach, I teach Skype lessons, right, on my website, if you didn't know that. And... Um, one of the things that happens when you teach Skype lessons is you end up teaching people in different countries, which means you have a bunch of different time zones. You have a bunch of like interesting communication things where you don't realize that things work the same. You know, they, that, that works, things work differently in different places. For instance, in like Germany, um, I believe they call B flat B and they call normal B H. Maybe I have that backwards. Um, but that's really interesting because when I have German students, I have to be aware that that's happening and I have to communicate appropriately. Um, and most of them are aware of the like the way the rest of the world does it too, but it it's more helpful for them in their like native way. Anyway, point is, I had a student that was in Australia, and she sent me an email, and she was like, "Hey, is there any way we could do a lesson every fortnight?" And I was like, "Oh, that's <laughs> that feels strangely formal. Who says fortnight?" And then apparently, <laughs> fortnight you can you can let me know if you're Australian and this is a thing. Also, shout out to Sandy. Sandy, if you're listening, I'm telling the Fortnite story. Um, but yeah, I mocked her, of course, because that's what I do. Um, and she told me that it's normal in Australia. Everyone says Fortnite. Who says Fortnite? Um, I, I, I have no idea if this is true, but um, I heard that there was like every two weeks, Canadians get a holiday and they call it a Fortnite. You get a Fortnite. Ah, it's the Canadians too. Yeah, um, I affectionately refer to to all of them, you know, Brits, Canadians, Australians, as Queen's people, 
<laughs> the, the Queen's people. Well, um, a shout out to my Canadian students too. I can't name you all by name because I think there's like three of you. And who has time for three names, right? That's too many. <laughs> um, I, I barely remember your name. I mean, was it Michael? I think my name is Grass. <laughs> uh, another funny story about Australia is that uh, uh, Sandy was actually in Queensland, in the Queensland. and um, So she's a real Queens person. She is, yeah. So it's funny that you say that. Um, and Sandy's address and home phone number is, no. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And I also didn't know this, but apparently the kind of, uh, I don't know quite how derogatory it is, so it's funny that I'm including it in the podcast, but there's, uh, like, the term for people there is banana benders. And my understanding is that it means kind of like hick or, like, you know, kind of like, you know, more like country-type people. Um, So I get to uh, jokingly call her a banana bender, which I find hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we should probably look at yeah, just I, how just how inappropriate that is. Just how racist is Banana Bender? Yeah, um, in case you know, we have to cut this part out. Oh no! I mean, it says it says Australian slang and native or inhabitants of Queensland. See, I know what's up. Huh. Apparently, they produce over ninety percent of Australia's bananas. Wow! <laughs> we'll give Kazakhstan a, a run for their money. Aren't you glad that you're listening to this guitar podcast right now? We're talking about the banana production in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the beginnings of these podcasts are always so interesting to me because they usually have nothing to do with guitar. And um, we don't plan out we, any of this because we can't plan anything. We're not smart enough to plan. <laughs> I have small brain. <laughs> that tiny brain. <laughs> tiny brain. Um. And with that, transition into something that's not quite guitar-related, but sort of guitar-related. Seamless. Um, I built a, I I use the term built loosely, um, a a makeshift practice banjo. (laughs) I saw it last night. It's it's really something. It's a, it's... It's terrible. It's a it's a Jimi um, Hendrix banjo. <laughs> so so what it is is it's a it's a guitar. It's a left-handed Stratocaster um, <laughs> that I put a right-handed neck onto. I liked the lefty neck, but uh, tuning it was a pain in my buttocks. So I put the right-handed neck so I can just reach for the tuning pegs. But uh, enough of that. I. Uh, I've got the top four strings tuned D, G, B, D, like a banjo. And then I took the bottom two strings off and then strung up another B string um, on <laughs> where, the, where the A string would go. And I cut a pen cap and filed it down. And I just stuck that over one of the frets to... Uh, give the impression that it's like the, the five-string banjo thing. Yeah, that you have like the, the mid-neck tuner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's that's not a, really a, a tuner, it's a pen cap. That's a, it's, it's wild. It's, it's, it's weird. 
Um, I love that you're actually getting into some banjo, though. You're you're encroaching on my on my grass territory. Yeah, I, I figured it's time to learn something about grass, but you know, I don't want to step to step to you. So I'll, yeah, right. I'll so you, you, you're picking a different instrument. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> Um, so we uh, uh, last night we were talking on Skype as we do, and I shot you some banjo tabs, um, and we we both fumbled our way through those. We're both terrible banjists, and uh, <laughs> is that the the accepted vernacular? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, have you have you looked at them again? Um, no, I pretty much went right to bed after. After our talk last night, and then you woke up, so you you've had no time, man. Mm-mm. Um, but I'm gonna get back to it. I'm gonna learn how to sort of play the banjo. That's that's my goal for the next little while. I can't wait, man. When you uh, when you uh, you know when you become a professional banjo player, you're welcome to join the uh, the uh, Marcel Ardance Quintet. Yes, that's the that's the plan. <laughs> Oh man, yeah, that's crazy. I tried, um, I tried banjo for a long time, and I could never truly get the hang of it. I think what bothered me was the um, more than anything, like with the finger picks, um, is the the actual finger picks themselves. I I feel good with they they finger picks feel really natural, and if you're new to them, you can like push them like farther on your finger, and they feel like more natural, like extensions of your finger. But I never liked the distance of the thumb pick. Is something that I couldn't get over, because I'm used to when I play finger style, on the rare occasion that I do, I'm used to like using the meat of my thumb to pluck the string, and for me to have to keep my thumb away from the string, and like trust that the pick's gonna be there, feels really strange to me. I I, I don't know. I don't know. I I think I'm just dumb, but I I couldn't get over that. And that's that's the real flat picker part of me talking. The distance just seemed so long. Um, and nowadays, when I do anything that's finger style, I just hybrid pick it. I hold my pick and my finger to use as the thumb pick, and then I use my ring finger and my middle finger. Um, quick question: do Do any banjo players use nails? No, that's not really a thing. Um, and I don't I don't know why that is. Uh, probably from it just wearing on the strings and banjo is such a loud instrument. Maybe there's some example of that in the old time tradition, but not the bluegrass tradition, um, right? And the the history of that is just that, you know, bluegrass specifically as a genre, like the specific five instruments of upright bass, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, and banjo, really only started in like 1945, and so that's like our stopping point. You know, that's when bluegrass starts, and most things before that you could kind of say fall under the old time umbrella. And there's other like subgenres of like the brother duets and stuff like that. My cat just walked in. <laughs> I, hear, I hear a couple meows. My favorite part of the podcast <laughs> when the cat walks in. Um, but uh, yeah, so you know, it's uh, uh, to bluegrass banjo refers to a very specific thing. Normally, the banjos have resonators on the back; they're not open back. Um, and the resonator is just like um, God. How can I describe it? It's like a dinner plate shape of wood. And so the sound comes out of the back of the banjo. It hits the dinner plate and gets like reflected back out. So that's why bluegrass banjos are so loud. And then with an old time banjo, it's just open and the sound is kind of going towards your belly. So when you play it, it's a little more muffled. It's a little quieter. Um, And then there's the Jimi Hendrix style of banjo, 
where you get a lefty guitar and a pen cap. And uh... <laughs> <laughs> I swear I'm onto something here. Um, I don't think you are. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, to that effect, um, I want to give a, a nails update. Um, a couple podcasts oh, yeah. ago, I, I was talking about my nails and uh, I, I cut them off. I cut off the index, middle, and ring ones. You gave because up because I have a base gig. Cu- I have a base gig cup coming up, and uh, they really, really got in the way. And it was sad. I'm going to keep them a little bit longer than I normally would to try to, you know, still be able to use them. But I need my base fingers, and I I kept the thumbnail. I like the thumbnail. Ah, uh, yeah. Are you going to grab the pinky? No, that's the one that that I, I chose not to to grow out. So you're not into that whole like '80s drug culture thing. <laughs> I know nothing about this. Please elaborate. No, 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 man. This is this is a family friendly podcast. We're not. This isn't Jazz and Grass After Hours yet. <laughs> yes, that's that's coming. It's Jazz. gonna be a thing. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna live stream a podcast at like two in the morning. <laughs> After dark. <laughs> All right, man. Let's talk about some real guitar stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I've been using a lot of credit card picks lately. Ah, uh, yeah. You told me about that. Um, you have one of those pick punchers, yeah? I don't, but my associate Tyler King does. And I, I forget to bring picks a lot of the time. Crazy, right? I'm a guitar player. I forget to bring picks. Um, yeah, that's... And she uh, always has her credit card I mean, punch with her. That's that's pretty lazy of you. I got a couple on hand right here. Um, um, yeah, do you do you have some favorite cards? <laughs> uh, this one says vanilla. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. <laughs> Um, I can't. Um, I can't tell I, I, what mine are. I, I have no idea what 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 cards mine are actually from. But um, I like the thickness of this one. Uh, but credit card picks almost never come out right uh, from the punch. You you have to actually do things to them to make them work. And uh, since I was filing my nails, I had this like seven stage file. Um, like one of the like foam blocks that you like yeah 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 yeah. it had two coarse sandpapers a fine sandpaper like a a buffing thing like a smoothing and a shining step I don't remember all the steps but (laughs) after filing my nails I made a bunch of credit card picks and just took them to uh, my file and I, I still only get a success rate of about sixty percent. Yeah, like some sometimes a pick just it's not going to work. Yeah, you know um, I don't I don't I don't love them. Um, they're not like my favorite picks I've ever had, but they definitely like they work in a pinch. Um, I think what what really you know it, mo- it seems like most cards are like kind of the same thickness. There's like some differences in thickness, but they're generally all going to be. I don't know. What would you call that? Maybe like 0.75 or something? I feel like this one's like closer to a millimeter. Oh, yeah. Um, 
Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I see that. Yeah, probably a millimeter. But um, but I, I think what they're lacking is like the rigidity. Like they they tend to like bend more in your fingers because it's not it's not all about like mm-hmm. the thickness, right? It's like thickness and rigidity, and in terms of that, like for flat picking, like for bluegrass, I like a more rigid pick. I don't really like them to go above like one point two or so in in terms of millimeters, but um, I do like them to be like I don't want them to bend in my hand. Mm-hmm. This one I I have it uh it does it doesn't have too much too much give like it's pretty rigid. Um, I got I got lucky with this card. I don't know what it's from. It says vanilla. <laughs> That's great, man. Are you gonna demo the uh, demo the card pick for us? Yeah, absolutely. all the things I need a pick to do. This is this is a credit card pick of my own. I guess they just feel real tinny on a on an acoustic guitar. This is my normal blue chip. So yeah, the the credit card pick costs nothing, and the blue chip costs forty five dollars. Just feels like a fuller tone. Yeah, um, deeper fundamental with the the blue chip. Does that have any give at all? Not really. I mean, maybe like the tiniest amount. Um, it's mm-hmm. also it's also beveled. The credit card pick that I have isn't isn't sanded down. Um, it's pretty. It's fairly rough around the edges still. Yeah, that's the the biggest um, the biggest thing I don't like in a pick is if there's any rough edges at all. I will I will take a file to it because I don't want my pick catching at all like it's a i don't want to say it's a it's a well-oiled machine my my guitar playing but it's a, <laughs> it's a machine that i i know i know how it works and any kink into that machine it's going to uh it's going to give me a bad time you know i like the um i'm not sure we talked about this before but uh probably uh john pierce Makes a makes a casein pick, and casein's like a, a milk protein. Um, huh. Yeah, and they used to make buttons out of casein, um, but it uh, because it's like a, you know, it's a, it's a pretty natural product. It wears really similar to tortoise shell, so a lot of bluegrass players like that the tortoise shell sound. And tortoise shell is definitely a little bit harder to come by legally these days. Um, mm-hmm. 
But uh, uh, yeah, it's a good choice for like people people who like that sound. The problem with them is that they snap. So I have one that snapped on me right here. Um, but they um, a tortoise shell pick when they wear sometimes they kind of have like little ridges in them because the material isn't like perfectly consistent all the way through. You know, like a tortoise mm-hmm. shell potentially has some like weaker spots in it. And so as you wear through it, you'll get like these tiny little imperfections in the bevel, um, which is really cool and really natural. Um, I'm not sure there's any way I can demo that so you can really get the sound of it or anything, but it definitely feels different. So yeah, I'm playing with half a pick. I used to like them a lot, and they're they're definitely cheaper than a blue chip too. But um, I think these go for like fifteen bucks or something like that. Maybe that's true. I don't remember. How long have you been running your your blue chip for? Yeah, dude, my blue chip. God, how long have I had it now? Um, probably around the uh, same length of time that the lessons with Marcel business has been going on. So um, maybe like three or four years now. So yeah, I've played exclusively with this one pick for like the last three or four years and I haven't lost it. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, it looks brand new. I mean, you, I, I play a lot every day and like the bevel looks just like how it came. I guess there's some like surface scratches and stuff like that, you know, where like you can see it's been in my pocket with keys and other things probably, but, um, yeah, it's perfect. It's crazy. Um, Whatever they make blue chips out of, because they they refuse to share any of that information, it's definitely a magical material. Yeah, um, I'd imagine that's a super secret. It's it's really interesting. I wish they uh, well, of course they can't they can't share any of that. But I wish I could have some kind of hint or clue as to like what exactly it is. But I mean, it's some kind of plastic, but. Uh, God, they just hold up better than anything. Um, they're really only alternative to blue chips, it seems like, are the, are the Wiegens, um, W-E-G-E-N. And um, those ones you, you've probably seen are like the black ones. They normally have like three or four holes drilled in the middle. Um, mm. And those, those don't uh, really wear that much either. Definitely, I think, more than a blue chip. But um, I guess those are more maybe more popular with mandolin players. But uh, those are excellent picks, too. Um, I've never owned one, actually. I've only, like, borrowed friends and played other people's. But I like those a lot, too. Um, I'm, uh, I've become a blue chip fanboy, though. It's all I play now. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a second about... Uh, I want to ask you about um, pick grip. Like, how, how loose or tight are you gripping the pick when you play? Yeah, I think that's... I think that's a really like interesting conversation point. I think you find a lot of different ways that people do that. Um, I think what it really comes down to more than anything is how you how you deal with how the the pick has to like give through a string, right? And when you have when you have a pick that gives more, that's less rigid, you can hold the pick very tightly because it's gonna like flop around at the end and it's gonna like have no problem snapping through the string. Um, but when you have a, a more rigid pick, like if you just make a fist kind of and slip the pick in under your thumb, um, as that pick goes through the strings, your thumb has to give almost. Like there's almost like a rocking motion up and down as the pick goes. 
And I was told for bluegrass picking that if you're holding the pick tight enough to never drop it, you're probably holding it too tight, which I thought was interesting advice. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't thought about, you know, the, the amount of pressure I'm putting on the pick uh, between my thumb and index finger until very, very recently. And that was a part of my technique that I've never audited and thought that it's, it's time to audit that. And I, I had a couple discoveries. Um, the, if I'm holding my pick tighter, it, it's more difficult for me to, to get out quick lines. Um, mm-hmm. I, I find that I, I have to loosen up and there, there's like a sweet spot where, where my, my grip is very relaxed and loose, uh, but I'm not going to drop the pick. Yeah. And that's like, that's been my, my sweet spot. This is like barely, barely holding the pick. And there, there's a lot of hammer-ons and pull-offs, um, but that's that's just kind of um, my play style. That's that's one of those um, things where you like when you when you're working on that part of technique, you really like take what you're doing and you you like relax it and loosen it up so much that it doesn't work anymore and then you like go back on it a little bit, you know? Mm-hmm. I do that I do that with my fretting hand too, where if I feel like I've been pushing too hard on the frets, I'll play lines um hardly touching the strings, so it sounds like Right, and then uh, slowly I'll push down harder and harder until I find that moment where I'm pushing as light as possible and I'm still getting a sound. Because that's really what you want to do. I mean, the lightest that you can push down the strings is where you want it. It's the exact same thing with the pick grip, where you loosen up so much that you feel like the pick might come out and it feels really like uh, too loose. And if you tighten it up just a little bit after that, that's normally kind of where you want it. Mm-hmm. Get your bingo cards ready because um, I was listening to a talk from from George Garzon. Hit the George Garzon square. Um, <laughs> I'm ready for the the sharp eleven square. <laughs> <laughs> you mean the free square? Yeah, the free square. <laughs> uh, but George Garzon was talking about long tones, and he started playing long tones. Uh, I don't know how long ago, but just <laughs> barely, barely getting the the sound out of the saxophone. Like it is like the ghost of the note would come out when he played that that long tone. Yeah, and that that's sort of like the the exercise of just barely touching touching the strings. Yep. I also have super, super low action, so it feels like if I touch the strings at all, it's gonna yeah, it's sound gonna fret, yeah, yeah. That's uh, I think that's really important in in most things that you do. You can do that with uh, I don't know. You can do that with a lot of things too. I I think I've been seeing a lot in my playing that I'm something that I'm worried about is at higher speeds wanting to flatten my right hand wrist against the guitar. 
like wanting to have a collapsed wrist as I speed up. And, you know, ideally I'd keep my, uh, my right hand kind of as straight as possible. And if while I'm speeding up, I'm collapsing that, I'm, that means I'm constricting some kind of motion in my arm. And I don't like that. When you watch really fast flat pickers, they normally don't do that. And uh, I, I guess you could apply some of those same principles to it. Um, but yeah, that's, there, there's a lot of really hard, like small technique things that I imagine you never really get perfect. You just get better at, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're just slowly like yeah. stepping up. Yeah. The after, after a certain point of playing, um, it seems like the, the strides you take, um, it seems like you're doing a lot more work to get a lot less, uh, a lot less gains. Yep, yep, yep. Um, That's the uh, uh, the uh, what do they call that? Uh, the the declining. Um, oh no, oh no, Lyman. Um, the law of diminishing returns. The diminishing returns. Yes. Um, just like just like buying a guitar, right? Like there's going to be a really big difference between a guitar that you found for free in a dumpster and like a guitar that you spent like $2,000 on. But within that, you know, like, uh, you know, like a $1,500 guitar and a guitar that costs two grand, they're, they're not going to be as different as like a $50 guitar and like a $200 guitar, right? You're going to see like a really big jump in the difference yeah. between the $50 and the $200. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'd imagine that would discourage some people, but like with the with the technique thing and the law of diminishing returns, but it doesn't discourage me at all. It, it invigorates me. <laughs> yeah, every once in a while you I still get that- you you still get like a big jump, but like you know for for mm-hmm. the most part you don't get that anymore. It's like it's like playing an RPG, you know, like you get a lot of cool stuff right in the beginning, like. Hey, in the first Zelda game, like in the second screen, you get the sword, which is pretty sweet. But like the rest of the game is just terrible. <laughs> yeah, you need like 20 million XP to get to level 80 or whatever the level cap is. Yeah, right. That's that's how those games work and that's how guitar works. Maybe all of the guys that made those games were guitar players. But that's just a theory. A fan theory. <laughs> <laughs> Matt Pat gonna sue somebody. <laughs> References no one will get on our guitar podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's. I think we've we've beaten the the pick and pick technique issue into the ground. Let's uh, let's move on to something different. Yeah, man. Um, the other day we were talking about bebop scales. And I was mentioning to you that I was looking into them because I was thinking about, like, teaching some of that stuff, um, which I'm not, I guess, I'm knowledgeable about in that I understand the construction of those different scales. And you kind of have, like, a a Dorian-like jazz scale. You have, like, a dominant jazz scale. And you have, like, a major, I'm sorry, bebop scale is what I meant. Um, You know, and they're all constructed in similar ways. You're just adding a chromatic note somewhere, and it makes sense. Um, but mm-hmm. but I feel like they don't they don't lay out very intuitively on the guitar because you have this moment where you like you're putting in the chromatic note and sometimes those those like three notes in a row don't land on the same string and I feel like that's 
not great for some players. Like that's harder for them to visualize because the chromatic sequence is broken. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, let's let's take a look at my my favorite bebop scale. I'm not sure which which one this is, but it's <laughs> we'll be in the key of B flat major, and the, our chromatic note will be be between five and six. So for the people that don't and, know, why why would you even use that scale before you go any further? Okay, why I would use this scale? Um, just simply for this uh, right here. That that can lead you into a bunch of lines. I like that. I like that five to six chromatic run. Um, theoretically, it gives you a lot of cool like chord options, like B flat major seven sharp sharp five. Crossing um, off a bingo square. <laughs> <laughs> F seven flat nine. Um, D seven, which is like the three chord, but a dominant. Um, G flat major seven sharp five can come out of that um, that bebop scale. Mm-hmm. Um, so you you have a few different chords you can you can borrow from that that synthetic scale. Yeah, I guess I guess the solution is just that when you're learning that, you should internalize it as like a property that you can exploit, not as not really necessarily as like scale shapes. Like you you shouldn't you can. I mean, yeah, you should go through the whole neck and like try to find all the different spots where it works. But really you should be thinking about like your major scales and like your chord tones and know that you can connect six and five. That's the actually useful mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, yeah. If you wanted to turn it into, you know, a technical exercise, um, say three stro- three notes per string. Anytime you can add that chromatic note in, it's going to be a four note per string pattern. I'm on the, the E string changing to the A string. That's four notes four notes on the G string and that's uh, that's all we got in this position it's almost like every other string you end up with four notes on the string kind of yeah, that, that's sort of one solution that I'm I'm working with to the, you know, whole neck pattern aspect of this this problem. It's a problem. Yeah, it's bebop scales and the nature of the guitar and how we play the guitar. 
Yeah, normally the the passing tone thing in in a bluegrass context, like if I had to, like if I had to create a, you know, like some similar ideas, I think bluegrass musicians would do a lot of the same things, for like a dominant, you know, bluegrass style bebop scale. We're gonna do the same thing. We're gonna put a chromatic note uh, by the seventh, right? You're gonna have the major seventh and the dominant seventh. Um, and of course, a lot of people are going to do it with the, the minor third as well. So you have the minor third and the major third. Super obvious choice. It, I don't, I'm not even sure that warrants being a scale just because it's such common vocabulary. But bluegrass musicians do it a lot too with the flat fifth. Um, and you get, mm-hmm. you, you get the, the Tony Rice language that sounds like this. stuff you see a lot um and really it's uh it's a similar kind of thing where thinking about it in the scale doesn't really help you a whole lot like i wouldn't take that idea of this and try to put it in every scale position and try to like exploit this thing everywhere i can um it's more useful to like know where they all are and then include them when i feel like including them or when they make sense over the chord or whatever else you know Mm -hmm. Like I, I don't think about bebop scales really, um, but if I wanted to, I could justify most things by switching between bebop scales, like like this lick. That's switching between two C major bebop scales. between the the two and the one or the nine and the one and the chromatic between the um, the flat third and the third like you can you could look at that as you know two switching between two bebop scales but uh, I just think I'm playing around the third and then I'm playing around the one yeah So I'm not, I'm not thinking about switching between three different bebop scales. I'm, I'm thinking about my target notes um, and, and just playing around those those target notes. Yeah, so... All from a C major triad. I, I, a, more, a more productive way of thinking about it would be like thinking... Uh, if you were, um, I don't know, a more productive way of thinking about it might be like if you had a situation where you were playing like over, I don't know, a major chord. What are we in? We're in B flat right now? Is that where you've been thinking? I've been thinking of B flat, but then I moved to C for some reason. <laughs> okay, whatever, whatever key you're in. Um, so if you, were, if you were like in B flat, right, you would think like, all right, like here's my, here's my shape that I'm in, you know? Uh, and you could think like, all right, well, I know that I can connect like five and six, so you can put together a line. Or I know that now that I'm on the third, I can include the minor third. 
if it becomes a dominant chord, I know that I have a chromatic note that I can lead to the seven. Right? You, in, mm -hmm. Instead of like thinking about it like as a scale, you're just thinking about which chromatic expansions to the shape that you're in make sense. Um, is a much more practical way to think about it on the whole. So maybe a better question to ask yourself is like, what uh, what's the convention for like the uh, for passing tones? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And bebop scales are super confusing. I didn't really understand them until I I did, you know, the thing you were just talking about, like looking at the conventions of where passing tones uh, should be in in context. Um, and I do want to play this lick like that's a super super common lick yeah and that switches between two bebop scales yeah it's it, it's it, i don't know like i feel like if you're playing over a major chord even even beyond genre really safe choices to make are a passing tone between five and six and a passing tone between the second and the major third like those, mm -hmm. you know, genre crossing are really easy ways to include like chromatic language. You'll find that in like blues and rock and roll and jazz and bluegrass and and anything you want. You can you can probably fit that stuff in. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you could you could play like children's tunes and get away with those like those pieces of language. All right, if you even if you're just playing like. <laughs> Right? I mean, that's going to work fine. <laughs> right? There's, there's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's the, the two big ones that we're talking about. They work great. There's, there's nothing wrong with including those. <laughs> yeah, just experiment with placing those notes uh, into your lines. Um, might have to work a, rework a few lines to you know, get the, the harmonic rhythm to, to match up the way you want it to. But yeah, just add flat three and flat six. See, see what you can come up with. Um, yeah, it's really... Yeah, it, just experiment. It's, it's really important that you are actually just passing through those notes too, right? These aren't notes that you that you sit on. And those those that's probably, even though it seems obvious after you've been using them for a while... That's probably like the biggest mistake that people that start using those notes make is that they want to hang on them for a second longer and you you can't. You you you'd have to they're, be doing they're it. They're literally just passing tones. Yeah. It it would have to be a pretty specific context for you to get away with with sitting on one of those. Yeah, the flat 6 over a dominant chord. Um so like we're in the key of B flat, flat 6 is G flat over F7, that gives you F7 flat 9. That's perfectly acceptable. Um, yeah, you can get away with that over um, um, over a B flat 7 chord. Um, I'm trying to think of a jazz line, because um, I don't play jazz. <laughs> right, something like that, where yeah, I yeah, pass yeah. through it, yeah. And it's not, it's not like fully chromatic, but like that note's in there, yeah. Um, you mentioned something. Do you have anything more to say about bebop scales? Only this point? only only that they're terrible, and you should think about chromaticism as like a spice to put on things. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. 
one one more thing about bebop scales is that they're 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 symmetrical. They're they're eight notes, uh, so you can play. So you can just run through them, and it will give you eight note lines that start uh, beat one on the same note every time. Yeah, you get you get strong chord tones on strong beats. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's it. <laughs> that's that's the only other thing I wanted to add about bebop scales. You were mentioning something about soul scales, and I have no idea what this what this concept is. Yeah, so I, um, this, you know, it's basically kind of everything that we've been talking about with the chromatic passing tones, but there's a guy on YouTube and I, I don't know his name. I can't remember the name of his account, but um, uh, a fan from uh, Germany, shout out to Cliff. He sent me an email and he told me to check out these videos. And um, yeah, this guy had this, um, this concept of a soul scale, which I thought was interesting and um, he makes like pentatonic scales and like um, like seven note scales out of them, and uh, it's an interesting thing. It's mostly based around the arpeggio, and then including the passing tones as full scale tones. So, it, like if you were in, let's pick a new key. Let's say you're in D. How about? Um, so if you were in D. Um, you you have your normal D arpeggio, right? Which only gives you three notes, not really a scale at this point. Um, but if you add in um, if you add in the minor third, right? Suddenly we have uh, four notes in our scale: one, two, three, four, and that would be one again. Um, and then if you add in the sixth, you end up with what this guy calls a sol pentatonic scale. Which is basically a pentatonic scale, but instead of the second, you have the minor third. But the guy's kind of making an interesting argument for like this is this is one of the like really safe ways that people play interesting lines without getting in any trouble. Or like the line doesn't feel it doesn't have to feel pentatonic necessarily, because instead of the second, we have the minor third, so you have like more flavor to your line, so it feels more soulful, if you will. But it's still very safe, right? Okay. Right, yeah, this is like, yeah. this is this guy's methodology. So if you continue, right, because now we have, now we have this. Um, and that's, that's another thing about it, is that when he plays the scale ascending or descending, he always plays the minor third to the major third. Um, so then if you, um, if you wanted to take it further, right, you could potentially add in um, like the dominant seventh. Or if you took it even farther, right, you'd end up adding in the second. Uh, I wanted to play an enclosure, but I'm not going to. <laughs> uh, right, and that's, um, um, I, I think that's a, a pretty interesting way of, of thinking about it, right? Because when you just, when you just structure the same thoughts differently in your head, you end up playing different things. But um, what I liked more than anything about this guy's whole theory and methodology was he was saying that you should structure these so they feel like um, uh, like kind of like five of five progressions that just continue and continue and continue. 
So like if you were going to practice this, you should do this. It's basically like an arpeggio exercise. And then... Right? through the whole circle of fifths but um even more interesting than the soul scale concept was how i thought he was laying out the shapes on the guitar so um uh just saying the shapes as i go through them i'm thinking about uh a d chord in a c shape so i'm playing it between uh second and fifth fret and then when i play the g chord I'm thinking about it at like the top of the E shape. So I'm playing it between third and fifth fret. And then when I move to the next chord, my C chord, I'm thinking about it in like the A shape. And my next chord, the F chord, I'm thinking in the D shape. And then moving forward, my next chord would be uh, B flat, and I'm thinking about it um, in the G shape, and then it repeats. Then I'm back to the C shape, but this time, instead of playing D, I'm a half step higher, I'm playing E flat. And you end up playing all the different um, all the different chords and all the different shapes as you slowly work that up fret by fret on the fretboard. And I don't know, maybe now that I say it out loud, it seems like an obvious exercise, but it's not one that I've ever done. I, I never did that. Uh-uh. <laughs> did you ever do that? that? No, that sounds very caged system to me. It is, yeah. And so you... You can expand on that in different ways. So yeah, one one example that he gave was you could uh, you could make the line twice as long, and you could play something like right. That's a little more than twice as long. But then I would do it over here, right? And I would try to continue that idea of hitting both the thirds. Minor third always has to go the same direction. Uh, right? That's hard for me to, like, think about, and it should be much easier. I don't know why, but, yeah. Mm-hmm. Makes you... A, yeah, I might go through that one. Yeah. Uh, a bunch. I, I'm not too big of a fan of, like, the, the caged system. What What are your opinions on the caged system? I, I think it works really well as like a, I don't know, what's the word? Like a, a, a supplemental piece of information for like the, um, for like the pentatonic system. Or if you have like seven major scale positions, like, you know, essentially the modes, um, you can work those up into the cage system too, where you're like, you know, working out of every different like chord shape that comes along. And I think all of that's very interesting. Um, because like, for instance, if you do it, if you do like an expanded cage system and you do it with the modes and you try to find chord shapes in each of them, you end up using chord shapes that don't really exist casually. Like for instance, like the minor C shape, you know, Mm -hmm. isn't, isn't something that you can like strum as a cowboy chord, (laughs) you know, it's not like, it's not like a basic chord that people learn, like the minor C shape. Mm Mm-hmm. 
so that's that's like a fun thing that comes up, you know, and I, I think that that's useful for people to do. And if you do the cage system in major and minor, you end up finding some stuff that you don't normally use. But as as like a whole system to view the guitar, I think it's kind of limited because it's only chord tones. I mean, it's more like an arpeggio exercise more than anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you think it's lacking? Um, I, I think it's it's like it's missing a lot of its vitamins. Um, it's a, a very macronutritious diet, but <laughs> um, you need your your micronutrients. Yeah, um, the the non core tones. Um, and the way I got that is just learning, you know, three note per string patterns in, in all 12 keys. Really, if you just look at the major scales, there's only seven three note per string patterns. Mm-hmm. And once you have that, you have um, a three note per string scale, uh, scale shape that starts um, on every different scale degree. And so you can think, I want to play uh, E-flat major starting on the the fourth um, and then run all those different positions. Which that, it, that gives you what I call the Lydian position. Yeah, yeah, which becomes becomes like a modal talk, right? If you're um, if you're like using G as your starting note, you have like the G major choice where you have three notes per string, which is probably the major scale shape like that that everyone knows, right? Three five seven, three five seven, four five seven, four five seven, then five seven eight, five seven eight. Um, and right, if you knew all of them, then you could just swap between them. So like. Um, if I was playing a C major scale and I was starting in that same spot and I wanted a three note per string scale, I'd end up with this. Which is, uh, I think, also an like, equally useful one and easy to learn if you're starting that system too. You end up with three, five, seven, three, five, seven, three, five, seven, then four, five, seven, um, five, six, eight, and then five, seven, eight. Yeah, like that that's a great way to go through three note per string patterns is look at every scale that contains a G, uh, a G natural, and just run your positions like that. You can run them in in fifths, you can run them stepwise. So G major. Um that's not G major. Um F major. Uh, e flat major. Uh, what's the next one down? D major. Oh yeah. <laughs> and then C major. B flat major. And we back at no A A flat major. We're back at G major. And you can do it in fifths as well. So doing doing an exercise, what were you say? Uh, doing an exercise like that, I definitely think about. I, I think about my chord shapes a little bit. Like, um, like I'm definitely not thinking caged, but I do think about like how it relates to a chord shape that would be there, because maybe that's the quickest way for me to pull up that major scale in my mind, the way I currently think. Hmm. 
I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally thinking them as like the modal position. Ionian, Dorian, um, Phrygian. Oh, they 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 all go um, like the, the order of the modes if you're thinking stepwise. <laughs> yeah. I just realized that. <laughs> so, um, so with your three note per string patterns, um, you can play all your scales like that. Do you have your scales in a in like a vertical position too? So like instead of going up like this for G, um, like putting them in a box, you'd have this. Right where I'm sticking between second fret and fifth fret. Do you have those too? Like do you think of it that way as well? Um, not so much anymore. Um, I, I've got that first one down, but I don't have the, the other positions down. Are, are there, how many positions are there for that, uh, that system? Well, if you're thinking about it that way, like most people are following the cage shapes or the pentatonic shapes. So there would be, there would potentially be seven, but most people only get five, right? Um, five. because it's a major scale. But, um, yeah, if you, uh, in, in bluegrass, I think a lot of those are pretty common knowledge, and the three-note scales are rarer because in every key, you have to be able to play it in the open position. So you want to mm -hmm. like maximize use of open strings, so if the position is vertical, you, you get more open strings. Huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. You know, so like uh, this like G major scale... Right, this that that's more useful to me than trying to create a three note pattern right there, which would be uh, because if I create a three note pattern right there, I've eliminated my open B string and my open E string, which are going to be like better sounding on my acoustic guitar. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and that doesn't mean I don't make those choices because when I'm actually improvising, like I'll make choices over here. Which use my open, you know, E string and B string, but I'll, I'll make choices that don't that follow more of a, a three note per string pattern too. That like ascend, right? That use the, the uh, closed notes up there for E and B, as opposed to those. But that that yeah, that those decisions are made in my mind about whether I'm traveling somewhere else up the neck to reach some higher notes. Um, because if I'm not doing that, I'd rather use my open strings to get a better sound out of my acoustic guitar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this this really goes to show like how complex um, improvising is and how many different choices you have. This stuff is not easy. It's some of it can be relatively simple, but it's not easy. No, no, no. And there's totally, totally different ways that you have to like think and approach the instrument for different genres and different situations, or even like keys that you're less comfortable with and stuff like that. You you have to like find the most comfortable way in the moment to like visualize it. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, something I did for a long time, you like to maximize your, your open string usage mm -hmm. usage. I was trying to minimize my open string usage um, just so I could have access to any shape by just moving it up or down a few frets. I got the same thing in a different key. Yeah. Um, which is real useful for me, playing, you know, things in, like, A-flat and G-flat and uh, other other horn keys without um, without the use of a capo. Right, totally. And there's a totally different, like, 
aesthetic and approach for that for bluegrass where it's not that the lines to music is any less complicated or anything, but since you're like exploiting the open strings for your benefit as opposed to like minimizing them because they're like a detriment, um, like the capo makes more sense because you get more of those open string uses usages. And, mm-hmm. you know, like with the, with the G chord, you know, this voicing of the G chord, um, with it like minimizing the third, you have a low down third if you want it. Most people don't even use it. Um, you know, it sounding so bluegrass and it sounding like a big old, you know, G5 chord. Um, if I was going to do like a fretted chord up here, um, I run into problems because I would have to finish my solo in a way that lets me dovetail into this rhythm up here in a nice way. Um, and also, this is just more taxing on my hand in that bluegrass rhythm tends to be more powerful. And if I have to hold down a bar the whole time, um, you know, it's not it's not that I can't bar. Or I don't want to bar. Or I don't bar all the time. But um, I certainly don't want to be doing it all the time. It's going to be, you know, for like three hours. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I'm the guy in the background that's got to be doing, you know, this whole thing the whole time. Yeah. Um, you know, we talked, we, talked, that- we, talk, we talked about some of that one time when we were talking about ending solos. And I was talking about how a lot of times when I end a solo, I want to end it in such a way that I, I have an open string. So like a G, um, I want to end on my open G string. So I open up my hand to make the chord again so I can go straight back into the rhythm. So it all like dovetails super nicely. Whereas if you were playing with like a jazz combo, like, well, the piano player is probably comping for you anyway. So you can end your solo wherever mm-hmm. you want and then just keeps going. Yeah. Or, you know, wait a few bars before you start playing chords again. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's a thing. Um, yeah. Have, have, you, have you taken a look at very many four note per string options? Um, no. I, I haven't really. The only ones that I've done is a like a four note pattern utilizing a slide at the end to get a major scale. So you could play like um, mm. and I've used those mostly as like a neck traveling kind of perspective. Sometimes there's better choices for that too. Like the um, um, like the Big Dipper kind of thing that I really like. This kind of thing. This is pentatonic, not major, but right gets you around the neck really fast. Um, and it's cool because every like uh, every step of that pattern is created the same way. So if you want to add an interesting note, right, it's always going to be right there. <laughs> so because you get to think of it like shaped the same way every single time, I think those patterns help people too. <laughs> I use that pattern all the time. Um, on on bass because I only have four strings to move around and if I want to get from like here to here um, I got to cover a lot of ground so I use a lot of slides yeah um, uh, those are really popular and sorry those are really popular in country guitar too that's all I was gonna say um I, I've been doing some messing around with four note per string scales uh over the last year or so, not too much, and there there are like two two schools of thought, uh, I think, from what I've come across. That that school of thought, where you have a repeated note, huh? and the, the school where you. 
you're getting a lot of travel out of the neck. Oh yeah. From from this pattern. If you're if you're doing this pattern, you can't, you know, go travel, you know, each position. You have to do something like G Ionian, F Dorian, E flat Phrygian. You're also that's how you'd get through the positions. You're also put in such a way where, like, no matter what scale you're playing, you're overextending your hand. Like your your hand isn't in like one position where your fingers are lined up with like three, four, five, and six or something. Um, like you're you're mostly stretching your index fingers so you can like do like an extended position, right? Yeah, yeah. the The extension happens with the index finger. Yeah, and if you uh, if you have uh, tiny hands like me and Lyman too, when you're doing those kind of things, we most of the time we both let go of the index finger note by the time we're playing upper things. So if you feel like your hands are too small, that's pretty normal. Like your index finger isn't holding down that note through all the other notes on that string. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's usually off by the by the time I'm playing third finger. Yeah. <laughs> And that's to, to prepare to grab uh, the next string. Yeah, um, yeah I, it's it's not something I, I super recommend doing all the time because I, I noticed I'm I'm bending my wrist a little bit, and uh, as Adam Neely says, keep a straight wrist. I think that's another bingo square. I think that's two. <laughs> Adam Neely and keep a straight wrist. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we haven't, I don't think we've talked a whole lot about that either, but that's definitely something to look out for your, in your playing too, is uh, is not bending your wrist. That's kind of what I was saying with the right hand too, right? You don't really want to collapse that wrist against the body of the guitar, which is really tempting to yeah. do sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, three note per string, four note per string. Uh, just get comfortable with the the fretboard, uh, learning as many different positions and as different ways as you can, uh, and soon enough you'll know all the notes on the fingerboard. You should do a um, you should do a um, you should do a, a guitar scale book, and you should call it instead of like you know because there's like the guitar grimoire and it's got like the cool like you know satanic looking cover with the pentagram. That would be cool, you know. Right? That already exists. That's cool. You should do like a guitar Kama Sutra with all the different positions <laughs> for scale work. <laughs> your your hand is just all these yeah. crazy shapes, different different gang signs. The, yeah, the cover is just the the hand contorting in all kinds of different ways. <laughs> all right, no one no one take that idea because Lyman's going to do that in the future. <laughs> <laughs> the Guitar Masutra. Uh, that would be so funny. That would be a killer book. Uh, yeah, that's that's not a bad idea. That's that's uh, that's worth a quick Google right now to see if anyone's done it. <laughs> I think it's I think it's all you, man.
Yeah, dude. No one's no one's done that. That's that's yours now. It's all you. Nobody's done the the guitar masutra. All right, I am on it. <laughs> on that note, I think we have a podcast. Yeah, we did it, folks. Uh, yet again, we've made it to the end. <laughs> I'm waiting for the day that doesn't happen. Yeah, sometimes it feels like the end will never come. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sweet release. <laughs> Um, well, cool. If you want to find any of my stuff, everything's uh, Lessons with Marcel online. So you can find me at uh, my website, LessonsWithMarcel.com. There I got links to uh, all of my YouTube videos that I do on the Lessons with Marcel channel. I also have a tab store. There's a bunch of free tabs. There's some tabs you can buy as well. You can sign up for Skype lessons. Uh, what am I missing, Lyman? Oh, I have a blog. And Lyman does, you have a uh, blog. Yeah, Lyman does articles on the blog, too. There's a bunch of ones about jazz. There's actually one that was supposed to come out yesterday, but it hasn't come out yet. It's going to come out today, maybe. Um, well, cool. Yeah, so that's, that's everything I got. Uh, where do the people find you, Lyman? Uh, you can find me at LymanLipke.com, L-Y-M-A-N-L-I-P-K-E.com. And that's where uh, I have a blog that I update infrequently. I got links to all the music stuff I'm doing, uh, some stuff with Tyler King. There'll be some stuff with the band One Eye High coming up soon, I'm sure. And yeah, links to this podcast there, everything on Jazz and Grass. Yeah, and you can sign up for Skype lessons there as well. Yeah, awesome. So yeah, the last thing that's important to say is that if you're finishing this podcast, you should definitely go on the Instagram account, Jazz and Grass. You should go uh, treat yourself, learn some guitar licks. There's a bunch of bluegrass licks that are posted on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and a bunch of jazz licks that are posted on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. Every once in a while, we do live streams on there, too, where we take requests and answer questions and do the whole thing. So, uh, yeah, please uh, please go follow that account. You can find that when it happens. Yeah, absolutely. And with that, we bid you adieu. Goodbye. Goodbye.